0: Chapter 2 of Sir Gibby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Ann Weathers. Sir Gibby by George MacDonald. Chapter 2 Sir George. The sun was hot for an hour or two in the middle of the day, but even then in the shadow dwelt a cold breath of the winter or of death of something that humanity felt unfriendly. To Gibby, however, bare-legged, barefooted, almost bare-bodied as he was, sun or shadow made small difference, except as one of the musical intervals of life that made the melody of existence. His bare feet knew the difference on the flags, and his heart recognized unconsciously the secret, as it were, of a meaning and a symbol in the change from the one to the other. But he was almost as happy in the dull as in the bright day. Hardly through hardship— he knew nothing better than a constant good-humoured sparring with nature and circumstance for the privilege of being, enjoyed what came to him thoroughly, never mourned over what he had not, and, like the animals, was at peace. For the bliss of the animals lies in this, that, on their lower level, they shadow the bliss of those, few at any moment on the earth, who do not look before and after and pine for what is not, but live in the holy carelessness of the eternal now." Gibby by no means belonged to the higher order, was as yet, indeed, not much better than a very blessed little animal. To him the city was all a show. He knew many of the people, some of them who thought no small things of themselves, better than they would have chosen he or anyone else should know them. He knew all the peripatetic vendors, most of the bakers, most of the small grocers and tradespeople. Animal as he was he was laying in a great stock for the time when he would be something more for the time of reflection whenever that might come chiefly his experience was a wonderful provision for the future perception of character for now he knew to a nicety how any one of his large acquaintance would behave to him in circumstances within the scope of that experience if any such little vagabond rises in the scale of creation he carries with him from the street an amount of material serving to the knowledge of human nature, human need, human aims, human relations in the business of life, such as hardly anyone can possess. Even the poet, greatly wise in virtue of his sympathy, will scarcely understand a given human condition so well as the man whose vital tentacles have been in contact with it for years. When Gibby was not looking in at a shop-window, or turning on one heel to take in all at a sweep, he was oftenest seen trotting. Seldom he walked. A gentle trot was one of his natural modes of being. And though this day he had not been on the trot all the sunshine through, nevertheless, when the sun was going down there was wee Gibby upon the trot in the chilling and darkening streets. He had not had much to eat. He had been very near having a penny loaf. Half a cookie, which a stormy child had thrown away to ease his temper, had done further and perhaps better service in easing Gibby's hunger. The greengrocer woman at the entrance of the court where his father lived, a good way down the same street in which he had found the lost earring, had given him a small yellow turnip, to Gibby nearly as welcome as an apple. A fishwife from Finston with a creel on her back had given him all his hands could hold of the seaweed called dulse, presumably not from its sweetness, although it is good eating. She had added to the gift a small crab, but that he had carried to the seashore and set free, because it was alive. These, the half-cookie the turnip and the dulce with the smell of the baker's bread was all he had had it had been rather one of his meagre days but it is wonderful upon how little those rare natures capable of making the most of things will live and thrive there is a great deal more to be got out of things than is generally got out of them whether the thing be a chapter of the bible or a yellow turnip and the marvel is that those who use the most material should so often be those that show the least result in strength or character a superstitious priest-ridden Catholic may, in the kingdom of heaven, be high beyond sight of one who counts himself the broadest of English churchmen. Truly Gibby got no fat out of his food, but he got what was far better. What he carried, I can hardly say under or in, but along with those rags of his, was all muscle, small, but hard, and healthy, and knotted up like whipcord. There are all degrees of health in poverty as well as in riches, and Gibby's health was splendid. His senses also were marvellously acute. I have already hinted at his gift for finding things. His eyes were sharp, quick, and roving, and then they went near the ground, he was such a little fellow. His success, however, not all these considerations could well account for, and he was regarded as born with a special luck in finding. I doubt if sufficient weight was given to the fact that— even when he was not so turning his mind, it strayed in that direction, whence if any object cast its reflected ray on his retina, those rays never failed to reach his mind also. On one occasion he picked up the pocket-book a gentleman had just dropped, and in mingled fun and delight was trying to put it in the owner's pocket unseen, when he collared him, and had it not been for the testimony of a young woman who, coming behind, had seen the whole, would have handed him over to the police. After all, he remained in doubt, the thing seemed so incredible. He did give him a penny, however, which Gibby at once spent upon a loaf. It was not from any notions of honesty—he knew nothing about it—that he always did what he could to restore the things he found. The habit came from quite another cause. When he had no clue to the owner, he carried the thing found to his father, who generally let it lie a while, and at length, if it was of nature convertible, turned it into drink. While Gibby thus lived in the streets like a town-sparrow, as like a human bird without storehouse or barn as boy could well be, the human father of him would all day be sitting in a certain dark court, as hard at work as an aching head and a bloodless system would afford. The said court was off the narrowest part of a long, poverty-stricken street, bearing a name of evil omen, for it was called the Witty Hill, the place of the gallows. It was entered by a low archway in the middle of an old house around which yet clung a musty fame of departed grandeur and ancient note. In the court, against a wing of the same house, rose an outside stair leading to the first floor. Under the stair was a rickety wooden shed, and in the shed sat the father of Gibby, and cobbled boots and shoes as long as, at that time of year, the light lasted. Up that stair and two more, inside the house, he went to his lodging, for he slept in the garret. But when or how he got to bed, George Galbraith never knew— for then invariably he was drunk. In the morning, however, he always found himself in it, generally with an aching head and always with a mingled disgust at the desire for drink. During the day, alas, the disgust departed, while the desire remained and strengthened with the approach of evening. All day he worked with might and main, such might and main as he had, worked as if for his life, and all to procure the means of death. No one ever sought to treat him, and from no one would he accept drink. He was a man of such inborn honesty that the usurping demon of a vile thirst had not even yet, at the age of forty, been able to cast it out. The last little glory cloud of his origin was trailing behind him, and yet it trailed. Doubtless it needs but time to make of a drunkard a thief, but not yet. Even when longing was at the highest would he have stolen a forgotten glass of whisky. And still often, in spite of sickness and aches innumerable, George laboured that he might have wherewith to make himself drunk honestly. Strange honesty! Wee Gibby was his only child. But about him or his well-being he gave himself almost as little trouble as Gibby caused him. Not that he was half-hearted. If he had seen the child in want he would, at the drunkest, have shared his whisky with him. If he had fancied him cold he would have put his last garment upon him but to his whisky dimmed eyes the child scarcely seemed to want anything, and the thought never entered his mind that, while Gibby always looked smiling and contented, his father did so little to make him so. He had at the same time a very low opinion of himself and his deservings, and justly, for his consciousness had dwindled into little more than a live thirst. He did not do well for himself, neither did men praise him, and he shamefully neglected his child. But in one respect— and that a most important one, he did well by his neighbors. He gave the best of work, and made the lowest of charges. In no other way was he for much good. And yet I would rather be that drunken cobbler than many a fair professor, as Bunyan calls him. A grasping merchant ranks infinitely lower than such a drunken cobbler. Thank God the Son of Man is the judge, and to him will we plead the cause of such, yea, and of worse than they, for he will do right." It may be well for drunkards that they are social outcasts, but is there no intercession to be made for them, no excuse to be pleaded? Alas, the poor wretches would storm the kingdom of peace by the inspiration of the enemy. Let us try to understand George Galbraith. His very existence, the sense of a sunless, dreary, cold-winded desert, he was evermore confronted, in all his resolves after betterment, by the knowledge that with the first eager mouthful of the strange element— a rosy dawn would begin to flush the sky, a mist of green to cover the arid waste, a wind of song to ripple the air, and at length the misery of the day would vanish utterly and the night throb with dreams. For George was by nature no common man. At heart he was a poet, weak enough but capable of endless delight. The time had been when now and then he read a good book and dreamed noble dreams. Even yet the stuff of which such dreams are made fluttered in parti-coloured rags about his life. And colour is colour, even on a scarecrow. He had had a good mother, and his father was a man of some character, both intellectually and socially. Now and then it is too true he had terrible bouts of drinking, but all the time between he was perfectly sober. And George, for his part, had trotted through the curriculum of Elphinstone College, not altogether without distinction. But beyond this his father had entirely neglected his future not even revealing to him the fact, of which indeed he was himself but dimly aware, that from willful oversight on his part, and design on that of others, his property had all but entirely slipped from his possession. While his father was yet alive, George married the daughter of a small laird in a neighbouring county, a woman of some education and great natural refinement. He took her home to the ancient family house in the city, the same in which he now occupied a garret, and under whose outer stair he now cobbled shoes. There, during his father's life, they lived in peace and tolerable comfort, though in a poor enough way. It was all even then that the wife could do to make both ends meet, nor would her relations, whom she had grievously offended by her marriage, afford her the smallest assistance. Even then, too, her husband was on the slippery incline, but as long as she lived she managed to keep him within the bounds of what is called respectability. She died, however, soon after Gibby was born, and then George began to lose himself altogether, the next year his father died, and creditors appeared who claimed everything. Mortgaged lands and houses, with all upon and in them, were sold, and George left without a penny or any means of winning a livelihood, while already he had lost the reputation that might have introduced him to employment. For heavy work he was altogether unfit, and had it not been for a bottle companion, a merry, hard-drinking shoemaker, he would have died of starvation or sunk into beggary. This man taught him his trade and George was glad enough to work at it, both to deaden the stings of conscience and memory, and to procure the means of deadening them still further. But even here was something in the way of improvement, for hitherto he had applied himself to nothing, his being one of those dreamful natures capable of busy exertion for a time, but ready to collapse into disgust with every kind of effort. How Gibby had got thus far alive was a puzzle not a creature could have solved, it must have been by charity and ministration of more than one humble woman, but no one now claimed any particular interest in him, except Mrs. Kroll, and hers was not very tender. It was a sad sight to some eyes to see him roving the streets, but an infinitely sadder sight was his father, even when bent over his work, with his hands and arms and knees going as if for very salvation. What thoughts might then be visiting his poor worn-out brain I cannot tell, but he looked to the pale picture of misery. Doing his best to restore to service the nearly shapeless boots of carter or beggar, he was himself, fast losing the very idea of his making, consumed heart and soul with a hellish thirst, for the thirst of a drunkard is even more of the soul than of the body. When the poor fellow sat with his drinking companions in Mistress Croll's parlour, seldom a flash broke from the reverie in which he seemed sunk, to show in what region of fancy his spirit wandered or to lighten the dullness that would not unfrequently invade that forecourt of hell for even the damned must at times become aware of what they are and then surely a terrible though momentary hush must fall upon the forsaken region yet those drinking companions would have missed george galbraith silent as he was and but poorly responsive to the wit and humour of the rest for he was always courteous always ready to share what he had never looking beyond the present tumbler altogether a genial, kindly, honest nature. Sometimes, when two or three of them happened to meet elsewhere, they would fall to wondering why the silent man sought their company, seeing he both contributed so little to the hilarity of the evening, and seemed to derive so little enjoyment from it. But I believe their company was necessary, as well as the drink, to enable him to elude his conscience and feast with his imagination. Was it that he knew they also fought misery by investments in their bonds? That they also were of those who by Beelzebub would cast out Beelzebub, therefore felt at home and with his own. End of chapter two.